this. Um, we'd like to welcome Heidi Moss Erickson. Do I, is that your full name in the right order? Yes, I got married four years ago, so let's let's put it in there. Let's put it in there. Soprano, um, voice teacher, um, previously scientist. I, I actually, yeah, last time we did Walt Fritz uh, podcast, I also messed up his intro, right? Um, so I'm not going to do that either. However, Just hand I it have... over, mate. Hand it over. That's okay. <laughs> if you sneak in like like I'm a juggler or something, you can do that. You can and, lie. And you're bit. just going to roll with it, yeah. I so... go with it. But um, but what what I'd like you to do because having seen um, uh, you talk about lots of things in the past, and also you've also written an article on the Naked Vocalist um, website before, um, mm -hmm. got to know you a little bit through that, and actually looking at your bio. Um, you have had a, quite a journey, an amazing journey through music, through science, through um, genetics, <laughs> neuroscience, even Richard Miller and how you came about that and also how you actually relearned to sing. So, um, yeah. so t tell the audience really about, about that story. Okay. And I know if I look like I'm winking at you, the podcast won't hear it. That I may be winking at you, but could also be my paralysis. So I always just give that caveat. I think I say my journey is a mixture of like adversity, curiosity, and serendipity. And so I was always into, I come from a scientific family. So I was always interested in science, dinner table conversation, you know, was always medical or DNA or genetics. So it's part of the culture, you know, we say nature and nurture. Um, but I did my undergrad at Oberlin, which was a great place because I could do a double degree in biology. And then, you know, Richard Miller had a lab there, voice lab. So it was my first introduction. I actually went to Oberlin because of him. I took his um, voice science program. So it was just spoon fed. I mean, here's the perfect place for science and music. But thinking music was not a career because of my upbringing, I did graduate work in biochemistry and went on to work in a lab and used my lab experience to fund my singing habit, where I studied with Stephen Smith, who wrote um, The Naked Voice, no relation to the naked vocalist. But um, and so I went on from there. Uh, when I was in, I mean, this is going to date me in 1999, I had actually serendipitously entered the Met competition and I had won the New York met competition which was a huge surprise and that same year was my cell paper on telomeres so it was a big year and so i switched to singing full-time i'm getting i'm fast forwarding and then right at the height of my singing career about two years later um i was struck with a facial nerve injury that stopped everything i had to cancel i couldn't talk my face was all droopy um at first they thought I would heal. And then I remember getting the MRI and the neuroscientist, the neuro, I mean, the neurologist looking at me and saying, I'm so sorry. You know, I had complete neuronal death of the entire nerve and branch. And so he said, you're not going to sing again. You know, the, the articulators are affected. The larynx is affected. People don't realize that the digastric muscle is affected mm -hmm. um, and platysma is affected. So there were all these things. Uh, anyway, so then of course, science came back because I was when it's something's taken away you want to want it even more it's like the kid in the cookie you know so I really wanted to sing again so that was it so that's how I'm here wow and I loved how you glossed over you just did this and then I did this paper on telomeres and that was, <laughs> yeah it was, <laughs> like that was kind of a big deal yeah. That was a big deal. Yeah, I made the front page of the New York Times, which was great. Because, again, we were talking offline about paradigm shifts. And in DNA biology, everyone always, even when I was taking it in college, it's a linear mo molecule. People 
thought of it as linear. And there were all of these mysteries because it was linear that I won't go into, DNA damage events, cancer, all these things. And so it was a mystery. And so when we showed my lab, Titi Delanga's lab at Rockefeller showed that it was looped, it was a big aha moment. So now textbooks show DNA as looped at the ends rather than linear. So that was the big discovery. I have no idea what that means. That's okay. yeah. Me neither. I'm sure it's great though. <laughs> it's yeah. really fun. It's really fun. Yeah. It's uh, just on that Heidi if you don't mind me asking you know what is the um you mentioned you know that got you back on the horse and you wanted to almost uh, you know be on your quest to to figure out what was going on where is that what's the status of that now with you know singing etc Yeah um I think there were two avenues one was the physical process of singing um and then there's also the vanity which you realized in a lot of people if you're a soprano, you know, if you can't smile well or be flirty or look, you know, especially in a naked audition room. So that was one element. Relearning um, just took, you know, I know you guys like simple reductionist exercises. It took a lot of patience. It took a lot of reading papers and it took a lot of just sitting there doing the most boring ass things to see. My favorite story is P because I couldn't say P. And I was like, fuck, I can't say P. You said I could curse. Oh, mom, I'm so sorry. <laughs> mom, I had to do that. Um, yeah. And so that's the thing that I think was, was the hardest. Was So now I know how to say P. I recruited different permutations of things. But I still remember how to say P is how I used to say it. So I can sort of, my brain remembers both pathways, huh. which wow. is really weird. And sometimes when I get tired, my family notices is because I'll start going back to that old, I'll start slurring again and going back to my old way. Um, so that's sort of a hallmark where it's like, mommy needs sleep. She's slurring her speech again and it's not from the wine. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. Yes. So with that in mind, um, you, you, you touched upon reductionist exercises there. Uh, we want to see, uh, see what alternative there is if we can't use them. Um, yeah. So, in, and with that in mind, you know, we're looking at with a number of topics today, clearly, um, that we want to dive into with you. But if we can jump straight into the first one, which is the, um, the singing in tune yeah. um, research that you've done, etc. Can you talk, talk us through that and, see, and, and explain why it's, uh, why it's something we need to talk about? Yeah, I think um, singing in tune, uh, first of all, I dealt with it on, on the extreme sense. I worked with some cochlear implant patients who are severely compromised in that arena. But I also worked at Google <laughs> with singers who wanted to just come in and, you know, never sung before. And I think a lot of singers are dismissed from voice teachers because they play a pitch on the piano or they sing a pitch and they can't match and or they can't, they, you know, they're called tone deaf or their, you know, various things that teachers get frustrated with. So I think teaching adult beginners and adult amateurs, which is something I love to do, it's sort of my favorite thing, and working with them and figuring out how they, how it's really not how their brain perceives the pitch, that there are other things in that trajectory taught me how to sort of dissect what pitch matching is. Um, and so basically we can just talk. So I think we shouldn't give up on singers that can't match pitch right out of the gate. And I look at it as like there are four areas. There's the input, what they're hearing. And a lot of times we'll play the piano or 
sing a note or even sing a vowel. And some people don't process that the same way. I don't know if you heard that Laurel Yanny thing that went around a while ago, but there's timbre associated with it. So you can play a piano pitch and some people may latch on to the fifth and the harmonic. Mm. Same with vocal mimics. That's what my little blog was about. We can latch on to overtones. We always say ah, but ah, formant one and formant two are next to each other. And it really can amplify the non-fundamental note. So people can also latch onto that. Uh, so I use E, for example, because the F1 and F2 are farther apart if I'm trying to get someone to pitch match. The third thing is we are wired to process our own range and voice. You know, that's how songbirds do it. And that's how we do it. So if I'm a female, this is what happened with my Google student. And he was a low male. My voice and the piano, he would just go, I'd play a note. I was like, oh. And then I, I got a friend to record. And then I even filtered out some harmonics in Voce Vista. And then I do a lot of visual biofeedback. That's what my paper's on. I feel we do not use that enough in singing. I have a cool little app where it's color coded and it's simple. Um, it's not like a complex spectrograph. And it's like a video game for them. They're like, oh, I can get to purple, you know? And so then they have a visual correlation to the pitch. And then slowly that muscle and, and voice connection happens. And this guy who couldn't match pitch at Google sang Caro Mio Ben in eight weeks for his Google recital. So it was like, it happens quickly. It's just, we have to trust that that ability is there, unless you're a music, which is about 2.5% of the population. So it's very rare that someone can't match pitch. Wow. So there are a number of tools in there. So let's just put it, if we can bring some, some, um, bring that into, into the, the teaching room, uh, you know, for a singer or a teacher, I guess, you know, I, I can imagine there's a lot of people out there that are thinking I'm pretty good. My pitching's pretty good, but I'm not, you know, it annoys me that I can't, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'm off. In fact, that's actually plaguing me my whole life. Like I just, I'm not on it like as much as I want to be. What would be your yeah. strategy in order to, uh, to get them on track? Oh. I think, well, first of all, our feedback is horrible. So you cannot trust what you hear really. And if you're listening at the same time you're singing, then you're multitasking, which is also another bad thing. So I think you have to, I think for most people, it's either a motor coordination thing. Um, and so they're hearing the right pitch it's just that signal from audiation to output is not quite hooked up. And I really think we skip the audiation step, which is key to, to singing, is to really audiate the pitch, the vowel, the timbre we want when we practice, because that is part of the feedback loop, um, is this covert speech or covert singing. Um, and so just, for, I would, just for the um, podcast and to, to, for the term yeah. audiate, that is to um, to hear the sound in your own head, in your own voice, basically. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's how we're wired. So how I would go through, usually if I can't get the piano or my voice to get them to match, that's the first step, right? They can't do that. Or they're flat or sharp. If it's a talented singer, I'll use the visual biofeedback because they'll make that adjustment quickly. If it's a, it's a beginner, then I do these kinds of more deliberate, okay, is it the auditory feedback? Then I'll do different inputs. Okay, if that doesn't work, then I'll do motor exercises with slides to get them to find 
oh, that's what it takes muscularly to get to that pitch, which helps these kinds of slides, you know, we're not quantal, right? So sometimes you give a target note and it's like, the brain is like, I don't like quantal things, you know? <laughs> so it's like, okay, then slide to it from wherever you want. Just, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then and, I and use... we're staring at them as well, aren't we? Like if they've come oh, yeah. in and they know they have this problem and they're like, I need help, but it's like another teacher who's just going to stare at me, waiting right. for and... me to give me the right thing, you know? Yeah, and I always say it's physics, physiology, and psychology. And psychology will destroy if you, it's like, so you have to almost say there is no problem with pitch matching. You have to do like a Yoda on them. You know, there are no droids here. There is no problem with pitch matching. And make it more like a game. Um, and because part of that inhibition will be the psychology of I can't. And that's mm. a whole thing that I have in, in voice teaching in and of itself is we can paralyze singers just in the psychology element and that interferes with the motor. That's why this visual biofeedback, I think is the number one thing that we need to use more in the studio. Mm. And number you know what, one. there was this, um, there was this great, I can't remember who said it. I wish I could, cause it just sprang to my mind. If I could quite, if I could um, attribute it, I would, but it was a, it was a voice. It was the symposium that's in Philadelphia. And there was a guy who'd done research on that. And they, he was talking about people who um, would profess to be tone deaf. And we know that that is a very small percentage compared to who, say, who says it, right? And, <laughs> right. Um, and what they did was they took, they took tone deaf, self-professed tone deaf people, and they played them a note and they had them move a slider, which created a single t a pure tone until they reached the, the right tone. And yes. most of them could do that. So what they hear is correct therefore it's either their conception or just how that brain connects to the voice the motor function thing absolutely um, so yeah and that's like that. yeah the slider is something they use there's a great lab i have to give shout outs to the neuroscientists who do this isabel Peretz in montreal studies amusia and that's one of the tests they use is this slider mechanism oh. to prove that it's amusia and not this secondary thing. So I think we falsely assume people cannot match pitch for the wrong reasons. It has nothing to do with how they are hearing. And I, I say that for choirs too. It breaks my heart when it's like, think sharp. It's like, no, 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 no. You can't, then that even messes with the brain even more, right? Because the brain is thinking the right pitch. So if you tell people you're flat, think a little higher, that messes the whole system up. Right. Because it's not thinking higher because mm. then they they get insecure about how they're hearing it. And so you have to go for the output. I say it's like input, output and everything in between. And it's usually the everything in between and the output mechanism, not the input mechanism. Mm. So, so circling we... that back around then to let's say the situation was, hey, you're a little bit whatever it might be. Flat, yeah. Right you're a little bit flat and the person will probably be, am I? Cause often yeah, their, um, their eyebrows will go up. Because yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everything goes <laughs> up. And, um, and then, then they might be tempted to switch their, um, uh, their primary way of singing onto monitoring what they hear feedback. Right. right. But I, I thought it was very interesting in, in, in um, something you put on Facebook, which was curation of a paper mm -hmm. um, and talking about that. It's well known. It wasn't to me at the time, by the way. <laughs> uh, it, 
it was well known in in the, in this world that they study that the auditory part of the brain is suppressed when we are singing which i think to a lot of people who find that out go what a stupid thing to wire into our head, right? To to make me hear myself less well when I'm bloody doing it. Yeah, well, um, it's actually, there is an evolutionary reason and you have to give the caveat that what is wired better is pitch, right? And the problem is, so when we're, you know, when we're primates, we don't really need to know like, oh, my timbre as an ape when I say there's a tiger in the room, you know, it's like, no, they just want to know there's a tiger. They just want to know <laughs> the pitch. And so by moving the pitch feedback, auditory feedback, people get blown away that the dorsal laryngeal motor cortex is responsible for pitch auditory feedback. That's Edward Chang's lab at UCSF, got to give the shout outs. Um, is for a more feedback coupled mechanism. So now you have the motor cortex for speech right next to the auditory feedback for pitch. Cause that's what all, that's what matters evolutionarily. The other colors that we put into our voice don't really matter for survival. Just whether are we loud, soft, high, low, right? Those mm -hmm. are the, Right? So those are the things that are detected. The rest of the information isn't useful. So we need that, that rapidity of feedback and firing, which is what that proximity gives. So that's what, that's what we talk about when we see the auditory cortex is suppressed. It's to enable this other feedback loop that's more efficient for evolutionary purposes. Isn't that interesting? And that's, that's the dorsal laryngeal motor cortex that it's prioritizing in that moment. Yes, we have two laryngeal motor cortices. This is sort of what I mentioned in my little blog because we're unusual. Chimpanzees don't have this, um, but songbirds do have two laryngeal motor. And that is because we're vocal learners. We're able to mimic, we're able to modify our pitch. We're able to do all of these crazy things with our voice because we're vocal learners. And that is a duplication of a pathway. And that resulted in the dorsal, the more... Uh, the less evolutionarily conserved, the new pathway, which is higher up. And I just gave a whole talk because this, this plays into gestures. This plays into so many things. Um, so it's, it's a, and this was, again, Edward Chang, uh, Michel Bellick is another scientist who studies this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, what, so when you say gestures, what are, what are those in brief, if, you, if they are brief? Um, how do, you, yeah. how do you then link the gestures and, and physical gestures to the hacking, I guess, of that, of that neurological link between those two cortices? Yeah, I just gave a whole lecture on this. I love this kind of pedagogy because um, we all want to move when we sing. And so, for example, the dorsal laryngeal motex lives in between... If it's all topographical, right, in the brain, the sensory motor. So there's like their neighbors and neurons that fire together, wire together. That's a famous quote. Um, and the dorsal laryngeal motor is far away from the ventral, which is just responsible for adduction and, and relaxation, not pitch modification, is right next to your hands and arms and limbs because that's how the duplication happens. So for example, vibrancy. And if you go, I have a slide where I show two singers, Mariah Carey and um, Natalie Desai, where they're, they're moving while they're singing and they correlate exactly to what the vocalization is. So Mariah Carey will vibrate and she'll do this. She'll wiggle her fingers. Um, Natalie Desai, when she goes for a high note, she does this. And so 
it's because this is a, a they're right they're neighbors in the brain these pathways so you can use gestures to enhance vocalization or to get through. So I did a masterclass live with a random singer and it was that exact thing. I had her wriggle her fingers and all of a sudden she had vibrancy instantly without even thinking about it, right? So it's, these are things we can capitalize as voice teachers, the neural pathways that, that, you know, it's just adding tools to the toolbox. That's what I say about visual biofeedback, using an app and using gestures. We can't be afraid to add tools to our toolbox. Mm. Yeah, interesting. And that takes my thoughts down the whole, well, if, if, um, if tone um, and that and intensity is kind of suppressed within that environment, um, then is that where the feed forward comes in for you that that should be guided by the desire to communicate the emotion of that moment, the and the hands, or the yeah. physical gestures to guide guide that through? Yes. I mean, I think feed forward can be misleading because it implies that feedback doesn't happen when really it's always happening kinesthetically as well as auditorily. We can't suppress per se. We know we can't suppress hearing. So it's, I always say that the, the holy grail is what to think about when, mm. um, when you're performing or when you're practicing and we know we can't multitask. So you can't think about your tongue, your vibrato, your posture, your, you can't think about all those things. So choosing the most efficient thing to think about, um, which generally after you've laid the technical foundation, I do think is a, we're wired to vocalize for communication. So finding that, you know, connection. And sometimes that emotion or uh, character is counter to the actual song to get the vocalization you want. Because if we're singing a sad song, we know we've done the work. Our subconscious will always be a part of everything we do. We can't take ourselves out of it, even our personal experience. But I don't want to sing a sad song sad because sad vocalizations from the limbic system are very low energy and very depressing. And so you're going to get, you know, a very, very, you know, oh, you know, <laughs> where you really need, right? You need this kind of energetic buoyancy that a different emotion will give if you're trying to pair those things. And I think we don't do enough play that way. You know, we yeah. try to be so literal and authentic. And it's like, your voice does, is not this complex human being like you. Your voice is, responds to these inputs, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and when you look at like, you know, even, you know, the, the on basic levels like the pitch and the register, um, yeah. for, for depending on the singer, especially if it was a male singer in like a chesty type sound that's higher up, um, there's no other way but to come to that with some energy. Yeah. despite what the song is saying so you do have to somewhat transpose the point of the song on top of actually the amount of um of uh, of of kind of i don't know en energy or or coming to that song with the right amount um right and getting those two things right rather than coming to it with just just the sentiment of the song which means sometimes we would be flat for example not quite make it mm. yeah i think I was just going to say, Heidi. Sorry to interrupt. I yeah, just yeah. to clarify here for for anybody listening. I mean, can we we've we, we jumped around a few a few thoughts <laughs> here, and I just want to clarify that you know there's a couple of there's a couple of uh, 
I guess, call them theories uh, at this point. Uh, and that is, um, you know, the one is about the uh, the inability to hear quite as well as we think we can uh, on a, on a um, auditory basis. But the other one here is we haven't actually, I don't think we've clarified it yet, which is the, the valve before air, vice versa situation that you that you that you've spoken about on many occasions so in, in case anybody hasn't heard that yet can you just give us a bit of an outline about what that means yes i think um and i should just clarify about the audi- auditory feedback just because mm-hmm. the other mm-hmm. element is acoustic right we do right. vocalize in front so we're getting feedback that way so there's another level to that as well mm-hmm. um the valve theory is something that I feel very rebellious about. And I'm going to say something here that will maybe disturb some people, but I no, don't, don't do... no, don't do that. Don't do that. We don't. Okay. Don't. That. No, I'm joking. Okay. No, I'm joking. No. Carry on. <laughs> I looked gullible Please. up in the dictionary. <laughs> no, ra- ram it home. That's how we get points across here. Okay. I, and I teach beginners and I teach children and I teach adults. Okay. I don't teach breath in the way that anyone would think breath is taught. I never talk about muscles or support or anything like that. And it's because if you look at the valve system, air is regulated through a valve. It's the glottis that is the regulator of air. Of course you need what I say, velocity and flow, but that's a singular gesture. It's not a complex gesture. When you think of energy and even flow, and if that's all air is, and the rest is regulated here, then that's the dynamic I really wanna refine is the valve dynamic. And so we can look at it from the neuroscience way, which is our whole vocal system happens in the absence of vocalization. We know from science that audiation triggers the motor signals to the larynx and the vocal folds, even in silence. So the primary focus of our brain in vocalization is on the laryngeal mechanisms, right? not the respiratory. The respiratory is coupled sort of after the fact in conjunction with, but it's not the primary generator of what our brain wants to do to process sound. We know we have to vocalize on the exhale and it'll be recruited. Um, so I think, but there, there's, there's some studies, because again, if we go evolutionarily, we're not doing these high level things evolutionarily. When you get to high level singing, which is what we're talking about, more complex singing, there was a great paper, I'm gonna try to get this reference by Ludlow, where there are extremes, extreme respiratory things where they need to be coupled. Hyperventilation and hypoventilation. That's when the brain starts freaking out and starts to like, okay, I need to figure this out because we're in hyper or hypo respiration events. Once you get to complex, I'm gonna quote this if that's okay. The laryngeal muscle activation patterns used for volitional tasks involve motor learning that are more complex, right? So we have to do these motor learning things and are very inconsistent across individuals. So once we get to complex levels of singing, we're talking about every person is different. And I believe every person is different, not just at that laryngeal motor skill. And this is why we have students who have ability in some areas. And, you know, some people have, you know, you were talking about tongue, the tongue in another podcast. I remember you talk about linguistic, right? Where they were born, it's their mother's fault kind of thing. (laughs) All of those variables start playing in. And the respiratory response is part of that. So we need to think about the valve 
more because that's uh, in singing that adduction, that laryngeal pitch signal happens first in the whole equation. In speech, it's concurrent, but in singing, it happens first. So, so say that in say that in a more chronological order. Just just outline okay. it. Pitch first, then pitch. Yes. Yeah, so. I mean, again, I don't think, I think these things, it's very hard to study, obviously. So we're, we're taking leaps from basic neuroscience papers where they're trying to find some sort of order. Um, Chang is the most recent one and his, or just simplistically is he tested both singing and speech action versus also thought. And in both cases, the dorsal laryngeal motor cortex and the ventral adducted before in singing and concurrent in speech to the onset of sound. So if we're talking mm -hmm. about onset of sound, if I'm thinking a pitch, that signal's already being sent in singing, right? I'm thinking, oh, what note am I thinking? I'm speaking a different pitch, but that signal gets sent first and then the rest follows. Wow, that's so cool, mm -hmm. isn't it? So cool. And yeah. I wonder how would that, that would work in improvisation. That would oh. be very, very interesting to see if that, if how that changes. And there are there, they haven't done obviously the invasive things that Chang does, but Charles Lim, who is the guy who I did the, who I was fortunate with Indre Viscontis to do this um, cochlear implant study, did fMRIs of improvisation, but for instrumentalists. But it is cool to see how different that is from this kind of coordinated thinky effort. And so for singers, I would love to see that data as well you know yeah. mm. but my guess is they're conceiving of a musical framework in their heads these things happen fast so it's not like you know i think of a note and then 10 minutes later my you know <laughs> these are very very quick just like our speeches right i could ask a question i have what the prosody in my speech and those are very quick but even in the brain quick it's a relativity thing first is first whether it's 10 milliseconds or 500 milliseconds or 400. Yeah. Right. So, all right. So with the, my simple mind, Heidi, uh, you're going to take <laughs> me there. The, um, if I'm, if I'm there and I'm thinking, I want to, I want to sing a little bit of Whitney Houston today. Let's go. Oh right. yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> now, and I'm sat here thinking, all right, so I know I can't hear myself properly. Awesome. Um, <laughs> Also, I know I need to get my valve activated first. Cool. What do I do? <laughs> I think you have to trust the system more and trust your experience more and think less. And that's going to sound very counterintuitive to what I'm talking about. So it depends. We are vocal mimics and vocal learners. So if you've heard Whitney Houston sing that enough times in your head, that's already mapped in your memory bank. So you can check that off. If you're talking about a singer who, yeah, maybe you need to clarify. See, I'm talking about you. I'd say trust yourself and trust your mechanism. When I do valve-based pedagogy, if that's what you're talking about, that's more reductionist. If I want a singer to know yes. how their voice feels in terms of adduction, and I call it the Goldilocks is like what it feels like, you know, right in the sweet spot versus a little heavier than center. You know, I call it mode one or mode two, but I really tell them our valve is a gray scale. 
you know, we know that, right? The CTTA dynamics are, registrations are not quantal really. They are a grayscale physiologically. So you can feel that kind of Goldilocks in your own grayscale as you go up and down through very boring, Stephen Smith who wrote The Naked Voice has this one exercise that I love. It's just like, needed all. It's like, just like really simple. Like I could see, okay, I'm getting the adduction. I'm getting, you know, and I can feel that or I can crescendo. You know, I can feel just the valve without thinking of resonance, without thinking of air. And that gives me a kinesthetic feedback that I can rely on. And then when I add vibrancy or I add resonance, I'm still in that, I call it like the Ziploc bag. You know, it's like when you, when you seal the Ziploc bag, you know, that feels, and you can even sense if I say, and I vibrate and I come off a little bit, you get a kinesthetic feedback of that rather than vibrating in that same plane of seal. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and when you look at it, when in in historic pedagogy, like especially in functional training, mm -hmm. like who might be Stephen Smith, I think was working on that kind of level. Cornelius Reed, people like Anne Miller right. as well. Um, Coupe yeah, de glot, yeah. Yeah, coupe de glot, yeah. They talk so much about going, hey, you can really look after that valve and achieve a hell of a lot before you need to be strategizing that breath, really. Um, right. And most people are not taking advantage of actually what might be, not saying this is exactly it, but from what you say and, and some of those papers have, have outlined, is if the order really is in that order, as in the pitch comes, the adduction comes, and then the breath comes momentarily in that order. Um, yeah. To th those, those kind of ways of training have been incredibly useful for strong voices in the past. Um, and why sometimes breath, I think breath can be important for some people who have challenges with it, but to reorder that towards only breath, breath is everything, breath is first, think about breath, could be fighting your physiology or your neurology um, in yes. that sense. So it's it's very interesting to look at the history of it, what's been successful and how that translates to what we're finding out now. Absolutely. And I think that's where those, that minding the gap, where bridging those two worlds could really help each other. Because we, I do feel, I was taught in a very, even with Miller, um, and then later on with a couple other teachers who were extremely breath centric. And it it did not work for me. There was not one teacher who focused on, and that's, you know, you can say that's individual, which it is, as we know from now, complex laryngology. But I think physics has a long history of studying valve systems and we are a valve system. And that is not a mystery of how a valve system works. Mm. And all valve systems are regulated at the valve level, not the input level. Now the input does obviously if you're over you know but to believe it or not the range that we think i tell this to my vocal physiology class that we are changing our breath is actually very small we can't really change our you know we think oh my volume is or speed is exponentially higher or lower it's not it doesn't change as much as you think for maximum to minimal output for the average person so I think we've conflated that there's these huge differences in breath efficiency and function and output when there, it's really not. The, the degree of freedom is the valve. Mm. 
Does that make Absolutely. sense? I mean, yeah, people yeah. study like breath volumes or, you know, I even did this experiment with my husband because I want to do a myth busting thing where I said, okay, I, he's not a singer. I said, I just want you, and I'm going to time it, to just take a breath in however you want and just go for as long as you can. And he could go on forever, right? <laughs> yeah. And I said, there's no phrase in any music thing. That's the other thing. We practice breath in the absence of phonation, which is totally a different process. Your breath, you can't practice breath for singing in the absence of phonation, period. You can't, right? No. And what you're doing that you're doing something similar to a vocal function exercise, which is really a really great exercise. And you might say, yeah, you've, for someone who's running out of breath in phrases regularly, but can do an E for 50 seconds, you're yeah. like, hey, there must be a conceptual problem in the way that you approach singing. That means that you can't exploit that. Right. And you can see it if once you do a spectrograph or so, that's why I love visual is you could see, oh, they're coming off for every note. That's why I hate written music. I mean, I read music. We all have to. It's written quantily. Your brain is such like a machine of literalness that it, there are a lot of singers that will sing notes quantily and micromanage the vowel for each note. And that wastes breath, right? Every time you're coming off and on, it's like leak, 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 leak. And so you can find efficiency through that Ziploc valve. And mm. you'll see, once you start thinking of it that way and teaching it that way, you will notice much more the leaky bits where the inefficiencies happen. Yeah. You know, whether it's, there's also declination of a phrase. I don't know if you know that, that, concept so as we run out of air volume this happens for birds and humans oh, yeah, yeah mm. the air declination drops right the velocity the flow all of that so given that there was a statistical study by patel for birds and humans that showed that if they take statistics of their songs they mostly ascend there's a higher percentage of ascending lines because that counteracts that declination so if you have a singer who's singing a descending line and is going down at the end of the phrase, you have a double whammy for losing breath. Mm. You have a declination rate and you have a valve rate. So how do you counter that? I have my singers mentally think crescendo as they descend just to keep that valve seal. And oftentimes that's all it needs. To them, it feels like a crescendo, but if you spectrograph it, it's not, right? That's mm. the other thing in our perception. It maintains. Mm. It maintains. Yeah. Right, yes. So, so really here, I mean, there's a lot here to do with um, you know, the placement of thought and, and the time spent, you know, and, and, and what we choose in those moments before we sing, I think is, is, a, is a big part of what we're talking about here, right? Would I be, would I be, would I be right in saying that? Yes, um, absolutely. In, in, yeah, no, and, and that's, that's, that's really, you know, really, and it goes along with, with so many other things we've spoken about in the past, doesn't it, Chris, where... You know, I mean, I mean, thinking back to, um, you know, Feldenkrais and all those things where um, it's just about, you know, in some ways it's actually removing some, some, some pre-existing thoughts a lot of the time, especially in singing, right? Especially with the breath, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and I think that, um, so with that in mind, would you say that your tool bag is really your, I mean, of course, it kind of always did for the teacher. Obviously your, the language that you use, which you would probably say is, is um, a little different based on the science that you've been involved in the past few years, is a little different possibly to, to a lot of other studios, a lot of other singing rooms. 
as well as maybe throwing a spectrogram in there sometime for people to look at. Is that, is that the... Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I don't teach how... I was blessed to have so many wonderful teachers and I don't teach like any of them. Um, right. And I do keep it very simple. Even though this seems complex, I am very much... My order is vibrator, resonator, activator. If I were to put them in order and how I deal with them with the student. And those are very simple things, right? Finding your valve equilibrium. They know, they know what I mean when I say that. They know what I mean with all of those things. Then resonator, which is like the Ken Bose, just simple, you know, shape modifications, um, not nothing too complex. Everything, you know, it's really like that inverse, you know, um, you know, it's like speech and then you round and elongate and then it's like, wee, you know, it's like I could draw a picture, you know, and that's all they need to know for any valid sort of works. And, and, um, you know, the linguistic neutrals we talk a little bit about, but it's nothing that any level I teach, as I said, I teach the prep. And then the last thing that I do at every lesson is throw that all away and let's play. I have these little emotion cards or character cards. And so I give them the reward of now you're not allowed to think. I have little, I have like a monster. I also have a little Beethoven and I say, he's allowed to think of technique and the monster's allowed to think of technique, but you're not. And then I give them permission for the end of the lesson to play. I want you to sing like, you know, you're a cabaret singer, you know, even if it's a German lead, or I want to sing like a preacher that works really well for some things. And that, that is how sort of I structure my lessons basically. Mm. And with the resonator part of it, how do you, how do you instruct that with what language? Um, yeah, it dep I, I think the resonator part, I go, Oh, that's a good question. Because that opens a whole can of worms that I want to talk about, but I can't, which has to do with another, <laughs> another paper of order of articulation and how articulate. And this is why I don't do a lot of exercises just for the sake of exercises. I do context dependent exercises based on the repertoire they're using, because how we signal articulation, we were talking about how we signal pitch, mm -hmm. is context dependent. So an ah vowel is not universally signaled as an ah vowel in your brain. It, it, it is dependent in your motor cortex on what came before and what comes after. Mm, right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I see. Yeah. So, so depending on the, the phoneme, it, it's going to change every time. Right. And so I do what I call phoneme clusters. So I try to create phoneme clusters that are like units. And if they think about a phoneme cluster as a unit, it's really bizarre how our brain works. If they think it's like, I'm trying to think, uh, strugo, like, like me, strugo. Like if I think of that, if they think of the strugo, right, it, it slows everything down. But I say STRU is one unit. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden it becomes clean, fast, legato. So it's a perception thing. Because we look at, we say stru, but they ooh before, stru. Yeah and you say it in that place. It's all about efficiency. So I think that language helps them, you know, seeing it as a unit rather than separate. Mm, and considering that, yeah, that, that preceding consonant in, in the goal that you might want to achieve tonally right. or resonant wise, it's, that's, right. that's awesome. That's really cool. If I'm and, not in ooh, if I'm not in ooh, me, if I'm in the mistrugo, if I mistru, right, that takes extra time.
But if yeah. it's me, me, through, right? If they're already in the ooh place, you're trying to find the brain's quickest way of getting vowel. That's the goal. What's the fastest mm. way to get the vowel I want resonant? Mm. And that means right. if, if um, whatever, that, whatever that thing is you're researching, it's just another excuse to get you on the show. Oh. So, <laughs> I'll bag that one and now you can't say no because it's uh, live. Uh, so, it's live. Okay. How about that? Yeah, that'll be my next journal club. So that's what I'll do. I'll do the articulator firing journal club. Awesome. Now we have one more question left. Okay. Um, which, which I was personally... And, and I know Steve is as well, because we spoke about this, is um, also quite excited about because of, um, because of actually the widespread use of primal sounds, right? And yeah. I'm going to get in so much trouble in this podcast. I know, and I've walked you straight into it, and I'm just going to leave you hanging <laughs> out oh, to dry. Dangle. <laughs> no, oh, dangle. Oh, God, that's so cruel. But no, I think I just, I just love the way you talk about it. And, and obviously, when it, when it comes to two worlds colliding, as in, you know, what, what's kind of looked at in research and what's, it, what's looked at in pedagogy, or rather accepted by pedagogy from science, which is often the issue that we have um, with a lot of stuff, um, is actually it makes sense when you speak about it in terms of primal sound is not quite what it seems. And so let's talk about what that really means. Mm -hmm. And I'll have the caveat that, you know, Ian Howell once wisely said is, you know, some lies are true and some things work, but the reason why they work isn't what we think it is. Yeah. And so we are amazing mimics. We love, like, as I said, I had to really resist not having a British accent right now, just because <laughs> that's, that's what we want to do. You know, we want to mimic. We all have memory of sounds in our database you know we have an idea of what a baby crying sounds like so if you ask me to mimic that that comes from my memory um but the truth is we don't our brain is not separated into parts in the way that are isolated units where we think this is my lizard brain and this is my emotional brain and this is my prefrontal cortex part and they have fences around them and they can interact you know independently we have what's called a triune vocal system, meaning that we have a prefrontal cortex of processing where language is processed, where thought higher order sound is processed. We have a limbic, which is our emotional, um, which is crying when we really cry, right? Not I'm imitating crying. And we do have a lower level fear, you know, when we really get frightened and we have that kind of, you know, gasp. Now, However, we know there's feedback all the time. So even if you gasp in fear, and that's a sound, that still isn't a primal emotion because it's important for humans to not have that ability of having automated. Because what happens if I see a spider and I scream? I'm not gonna scream every time I see that spider. I learn that that spider isn't that dangerous. And so I won't scream the next time. And so there's this feedback loop that's constantly happening very, very quickly. So in other words, we don't have isolated vocalizations. They are always interweaving. Some may be more dominant than others, but, but in truth, they are all communicating at all times. So when we say we're doing a pri if, if we if a teacher in a studio is asking for a primal emotion, what is happening? There's two things that could be happening. One is they're just imitating the teacher, which has value, <clears throat> you know, and it's like, it feels good. There's energy, there's kinesthetic feedback. 
it has a lot of positive things, but it's a mimicking thing. It's not primal. I'm not, you know, swinging, you know. The other thing is like the salt, you know, so those are, ooh, you know, it's like those are imitations. The other thing is memory, as I said. So your definition of a sob could be different from mine. Actors, however, do use, we can start to feel, you know, we've all been there where we get into a place that is a little scary in our emotions. So I'm not saying that it's, it's totally out of the equation. It's there. But if we were to vocalize in that pure place, we would not be able to, to incorporate text, melody, technique, mm-hmm. all Dancing. of those things that are higher. Dancing, yeah. Shaking <laughs> just, yeah. I'll just collapse on the floor. Uh, right, exactly. You couldn't do those other things that we're asking singers to do if it were solely from an emotional place or a primal place, right? Because those two don't go together. You're, you're having very high level prefrontal cortex mixed in with, you know. So I think we could say we're really good mimics, we're really good at playing, and we're really good at sometimes believing in things. You know, mm-hmm. it goes back to, you know, here we have Fox News. I hope I'm not politically, but people believe what they want to believe, you know, <laughs> right? I am really accessing my primal sound. <laughs> Right. No, it's, I, I, I often uh, I often recount a story right of a guy who was um we were doing emotional sounds you know like, let's see what it's like if you were to you know like try something that was more upset you know or maybe maybe yeah. this won't be very happy and um it was it was all coming out just the same just the same and I thought yeah. to myself oh, maybe this guy just doesn't know how to express himself you know yeah maybe he's one of those just a bit more very reserved in fact very reserved so I thought um I thought to myself I'll oh, uh, do you do any impressions. Yeah. Uh, and he said, he said, yeah, I do actually. I do uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh. I was like, great. This is so cool. Because I was in my head, I was just thinking, I just want to hear you be someone else. That's, mm. you know, like whatever can, is it malleable in some way? Um, and so I was like, go on then. What, what are you going to say? And he was like, well, I'm going to say the, the catchphrase, you know, the, the normal one. I was like, okay. And he just stood there and went, I'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, and I was like, I didn't, I didn't, I was trying to tactfully sort of say, you know, that's just you saying I'll be yeah. back, um, <laughs> but I didn't, you know, I, I just thought, mm, I don't know if I'm going to get around this. So anyway, fast forward on on years, I think it got slightly better, but but what it was, it was like, oh no no, this person isn't having trouble being primal or emotional, but it really is the mimicry ability in that person is it's just not a tuned system at that point hearing it the memory of it the conception maybe how that communicates to how it organizes everything here even in even in the listening stage and then actually repeating it out unbeknown to this guy he didn't sound a thing like Arnold Schwarzenegger (laughs) (laughs) and I I love that example because I find that too because as I said I do this so often where I do use an emotional cue or a care and I find there are students who do really well with a single emotional cue like a very, because it's more vague. An emotional cue is vague, happy, sad, giddy, you know. A character is much more complex. And I find there's some singers who can't latch on to the joyful or giddy, but if I give them a very detailed character that that emotion is embedded in, they are much better at that kind of 
thing. You know, we all sort of know, you know, be Dolly Parton, you know, there's pick a caricature like Arnold or something like that, that they can embody much more than a sort of nebulous emotion. <laughs> sometimes they sometimes they can embody it sometimes they can't again also this is the psychological aspect there as well isn't there of uh you know i'm okay being someone else i'm yes. not okay doing it myself and again another right another yeah. aspect of that that primal thing that i've definitely come across is no no honestly um imagine imagine you're calling out to your you know yeah. whoever it may be down the road they, they just they just you just seen someone walk Hello. up the shops yeah. Uh, yeah. And unless you say that, I love what you say, because essentially what we're saying is like, if you really do achieve what we're asking of you right now, this is going to, this is, this is not helpful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, this, you're going to be doing things that we don't want you to do. Um, yeah. So, so in that way, yeah, that kind of gray area in between that gap in between of, of yeah. using it as a trigger for something, but not necessarily achieving what we're actually asking perhaps. Yeah. Or attributing what? it to genuinely an emotion that's primal. Uh, it's rather a, yeah, it's it's right. still it's still an imitation that could be, in part, similar to that gesture. Yeah, and what that is why I put it under a header of play, because mm. that's really what we're doing, and that's why I put a, you know a, the judgment figure. I have a stuffed monster or various cre creatures that even adults, where that is the judgment, because sometimes the inhibition is there. So if I put, if I say your judgment brain is going in this thing it's amazing how that psychology works we're really weird people aren't we right like put your judgment in this stuffed animal okay um but, but you do okay. it and then i then you play and then it becomes i don't have to be something that they expect because i think there's this expectation thing too is like am i going to be the right kind of angry or am i going to be the right kind of it's like no you're playing there's no right and wrong I want you to be a preacher, however you think a preacher is. This guy's the one judging, go. You know, and then it has a much different element than, than them thinking they have a target in a way. Mm. We don't play enough as adults in any, in any shape or form, but especially in singing, we need to play more. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. Be allowed to play. Yeah. Now I don't know if you if you fancy um, taking a couple of questions. We've had quite a few people listening on the Facebook page, which is great. Everyone's very excited um, to be uh, learning from you and, and listening to what you have to say. So so yeah. first of all, I'm, I can extend everyone's thanks on the Facebook page um, for oh, that. Thank you. Thank um, you. First question is what what is your biofeedback app? The very simple one that you said you know go go up to when it's blue. Yeah, well, the one I was using is sadly no longer available, but Bodo, Bodo Mass, who writes the code for Voce Vista, designed a color-coded app that's coming out both for, for a phone app, so it'll be under the Voce Vista umbrella, and um, I can, I don't know, send you guys the images of it if you want to post it on your wherever you post yeah, yeah. things mm. so you can see what it looks like. Um, because I, the, yeah, so I, it's going to be out on Voce Vista. But to be honest, you can use any, there's like guitar tuning apps that work. You know, they're not the same as the color coding that I do. But any sort of simple spectrograph or simple pitch matching can help. The color coding is just a better thing for your brain. Guitar hero. Yeah. <laughs> <Some of that. laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there's also, um, uh, do, uh, from, from Muzz, who's on the Facebook page at the moment, um, do you have any op optimizations that you might have, or even just ways of training, I guess, for increasing uh, myelination? 
or neurological oh. change to embed a new learned uh, vocal technique, for example? Yeah, um, I mean, that fall, obviously we can't look and see, oh, my neurons are being myelinated. I mean, motor learning is a whole area. Um, and what it requires is reductionist, simple tasks, repeated, and then you go to these kinds of different stages of retention and then transfer. And generalization, right? And general, right. So eventually, so I would say that's why I love these kinds of reductionist things because that's, you cannot myelinate, you know, 30,000 things at once, right? You want to, you know, again, we can't really see all myelination means is just that nerve is getting reinforced and reinforced and reinforced, which happens through practice and deliberate uh, the right way. That's why I say sometimes we, when we do too complicated exercises, we're repeating mistakes. So if, if, if I do the same exercises that I did when I was 18 for 10 years, every lesson I go, you know, my muscle memory is getting imprinted for that. So that's why I mix up exercises all the time. So there's not this kind of, you know, monotonous repetition of things that I'm going to reinforce negatively. Yeah, absolutely. There was a, something, I think, I, is it use-dependent plasticity? Yes. Yes, yeah, so I saw that recently, and that was about, yeah, the more you do a singular thing, the more it will just drag everything else around it into that thing, which is useful, but also when you've done the same thing for a long time and want to change, it's also a massive pain in the ass. It makes it much, why is it so hard to undo? I always say mo my goal is voice teachers are working on undoing things mostly. That's mostly what we're doing is undoing habits. My goal is can we do an experiment where we start with a clean slate and then build someone with no bad habits, right? With healthy mm -hmm. technique without having to undo things. Right. I'll tell you what as well, Oliver is, um, has mentioned something here which is really uh, cool is, is you know he, he touched upon don't you think that the the valve first thing depends on the kind of onset that you're producing and and i take from that that you know he's talking about you know genre we're almost like assuming and i think we do this a lot i don't know how you feel about this Heidi, but I, I feel like we do this a lot as teachers in in the singing world in general is there's the, there's a generalized assumption of of the of the um of the successful sound that we're trying to create right off the bat. And uh, that's, and some people would probably call that efficiency. Some people would call that, um, you know, full spectrum or something. Um, but nevertheless, it's like we're saying, yes, uh, if I want to create this particular sound, which would suggest that I am efficient or whatever it may be, then that may mean that the vowel first thing is right for that. But it may not mean that it's right for if I want to sing breathy. No? Right. As, well, what you have to understand is that the valve is a part of breathy onset. It's a part of glottal onset. The only time where the valve isn't involved is in respiration. If I conceive of a bluesy, breathy sound, that's a mm -hmm. uh, there's valve in that, right? So defining valve just in that classical efficient way is mm -hmm. just how I train the Goldilocks, but then say, okay, I want to do a really good, you know, I'm singing in German or English and I want a good glottal. That's part of my conception of the sound. And that will still come first. Any sound that is emitted from your glottis is a valve phenomenon, unless it's a breath, right? So that's how I would say it's, 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 it's cross any vocalization 
right? If it's a vocalization, then it will have that signal. Mm. And you know what? Funny, funny you say that because um, if you play around with breath in terms of knowing how to slow it down, right? Mm -hmm. the, the velocity of it within the moment. And I often use right. raising the arms to do that, right? Because it tends yeah. to keep the ribs open and you get a slight reduction in breath movement. Right. And then what you get from a breathy singer who's actually quite loud yeah. is you get adduction of the vocal folds often. Um, so then, then you can see that that singer is actually trying to create a vowel phenomenon via breath, right? So yes. to create openness through pressure, uh, right. rather than creating openness through actually directly at the valve, which is right. where things get very tiring the first way. Yeah. You no, know, that's so very true. That is very, and that's, I think, the exception rather than the rule. You know, we can talk about how, for me, it's much harder to slow my air velocity than it is to control at the valve. Mm -hmm. But for another student, it may be the other way around. So that mm. is something important to think sure. about. Sure. Well, I mean, they don't control it, but rather I, yeah. get, I get this yeah. effect and that helps me decide what to work on, you know. Yeah, yeah. In that sense. But, um, okay. One, one more thing. Horatio. Um... Uh, I could probably answer this one, but I'll hand it over to you, Heidi. Um, no, uh, how, no, uh, no. I, I'm, a I'm a talker. I apologize. Like, I could sit no. here all day with you guys. I just, you know, this is so listen, fun. Ped geeking. Honestly, Heidi, like... everyone listening to this, you're not here for me and Chris. Right, so let's get yeah. that straight. What I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, he's asked how to, how to benefit from primal sounds in vocal practice. I'm going to say don't do them. But um, it's over to you, Heidi. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm I, always say, I, I always say you have to ask why, right? I mean, I yes. think one benefit is it feels crazy and liber liberating. And so if you have a student that's like, you know, like really contained, getting them to just like be out of control and freeing can just release things. Mm -hmm. So you have to ask. But, but if you're going for a sound, I think there are better ways to do that. Um, so you always have to, have, I always say you have to ask yourself as a teacher and as a singer, why? Why am I doing this exercise? Why am I doing this thing? And is it the best, most efficient way to get my result? I like it. And so I'll just add in there as well. I mean, I don't know if how, this, how you feel about this, but with these things, it's because I've, I've noticed across the years with singers, there can be oftentimes a a sense of, well, I, this is the singing thing. This is the, uh, 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 something that people do in the singing world. That means I, I must have to master it. I'm, I must, uh, and why, or coming from a place of why can't I achieve this? Why isn't primal, why doesn't primal sounds help me? Or at least feel like it helps me. Why yeah. doesn't my tw uh, twang work? But, it, but like, you, I mean, I, I, like you say there, it, it may not have to, right. you know, and we may not have to chase that carrot. No. So. And yeah, and there's so much individuality, as I said, just even scientifically, they know that the mm. more complex the sound, the more individual it becomes in mm. terms of how, right? So we have to sort of keep that in mind that that's why breath didn't work for me. It may have worked magic on other people. Mm. Never Hypervent, the panting thing, I have no idea why that became popular. I have no <laughs> idea. I, I, I still to this day cannot figure out why. I have, and if anyone can enlighten me why, I would be very grateful. I did. Do you know, I saw I saw an explanation that I haven't put into test. Right, was that um, it, that in hyperventilation the vocal folds are more taut because to so that they don't get sucked into breathing, <laughs> to, to sucked into the glottis, stopping the breath, and that may live on into the pitches after it as being slightly more, I guess, tilted, stretched, thinned, something. 
Um, that was one hypothesis for that, but I'm, yeah. Right, but we know that, I mean, this is the thing. We know that things aren't in isolation. And so it's not, if it's not in phonation, it's not gonna couple to phonation, mm. right? Yeah, mm. absolutely. Wow, this is this is so interesting. And we, is that all the questions on Facebook, by the way? No, it's not. We've got one more, and it's coming up a lot. So this is this is this is uh, there's a lot resting on this one here, Heidi. Uh, uh -oh. Vibrato, vibrato. Yes. What? How do we create vibrato? Is, <laughs> is the... That is not my area of expertise. So I don't quite know. I know there's research on the neural mechanisms of vibrato. I think John Nix is one of those people. Um, there is a oscillation state neurologically that we have, you know, there are these oscillatory timings and things like that. And I know it's related to that. And that is why kind of the wiggling of the fingers helps kinesthetically. Um, so that's, I mean, I think I'd have to get back to you on that one. And I would look into John Nix's stuff, but it is a fascinating area of mm. research. So I'm sorry, I can't answer that question the way I want to. No, it, there's so much. There's so much ambiguity, and it isn't there as well when you talk about vibrato and uh, yeah. how do you do it? Don't know. Don't know. Uh, <laughs> and I also think it's something that's also whenever we talk about these neural things, it's very hard to study, right? We can't like, we can, you know, there's no model organism. I mean, birds do have vibrato, but they do it in a different way, and you can't. We can't look at the brain the way we want to look at the brain. fMRI is sort of risky. The stuff that Chang does is amazing and i would love for him to do a vibrato thing but i don't know if his patients can do vibrato but i think we can make guesses but i don't think we can truly truly know mm. and what were you saying he allows he or or, pe or people allow him to do his studies whilst they're having brain surgery but it's not related to their condition right exactly so he's Crazy. a uh, he's an epileptic surgeon and so these patients have to have open brain surgery and he gets permission to put electrodes on their brains and get them to do different vocalizations to map those his goal i mean he i think he knows that i take his stuff and apply it to vocal pedagogy but his goal is for art for people who lose their ability to speak is to eventually have an, a computer calculate. So they've even tested that already, where they've put the algorithms he's created from this research into a computer and it can talk. It oh based on God. thought. You can think, uh, one of these mm -hmm. patients can think something, goes into the computer and they've done enough data points that they will get the words that the person is thinking. I hope they're gonna fit it with a filter. Because <laughs> uh, to be fair, I'm gonna need that. <laughs> it's like the f-bombs yeah, yeah. <laughs> but fortunately you won't it's only for open brain stuff so you can't really do it to everybody right now but that's the hope mm, anyway sure well that's that's just just, that's just so fascinating yeah to cover that for scott i don't know if, if he's um back to the variety thing there i think your answer there heidi for me anyway i don't know if this helps scott at all um because i'm sure everyone especially on this thread knowing the level of, of people that kind of listen to to us um it's, uh, you know, everyone's tried all the different things, all the different games and um, sounds to try and, you know, uh, get, the, get, the, get the thing going. Um, so what that does for me is it just says, you know, there isn't, a, like, like most things, there, there isn't a proven right way. And so it is about playing. It is about getting as close to any sort of sound that, 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 that um, sounds similar to where we want to go. Uh, based on history and experience. But there's one thing, though, you know, the old, for me anyway, the old school... The old school, 
efficiency you know comes with comes with balance vibrato yeah. comes with balance and i tell you i mean they knew what they're talking about back in the day didn't they because you can use all these all these games and you know car starting noises and whatever else uh, <laughs> but yeah if we're if we're locked up and we are heavily highly constricted in in the throat then um there's not a lot going to happen so so i think I know, those Steve, two but that's just not a satisfying answer is it i need I need. <laughs> give me something. Give me yeah. something. No, but do you know what? It's like it's, oh. it's very similar. I totally agree, right? It's like when someone, when I had um uh, my daughter Nell, and when someone was saying um, you know, when I'm like like looking like this, and, and someone goes, "Don't worry, mate, it won't last forever." That doesn't friggin' help me right now. How <laughs> long is that forever? How long is that? Like a week or like a t- couple yeah. of years, right? But um. And uh, but then I get out the the other side of all these like phases that babies go through, and I'm like, yeah, it wasn't forever actually, was it? It was all right, but vibrato's a bit like that. It's it's like what you said, Steve. You you work with somebody, and rather than training it, it just springs out one day. Yes. Like, well, okay, cool, let's go with that then. Um, that's the that's the lion's share of how it actually arrives. No exactly no, no planning. Yeah. I mean, I have a couple of, I had one student who was just, it it was very difficult. And so I'll just give you that reductionist thing because it involved visual biofeedback is very helpful. You see wiggles, like make those fricking wiggles even. That is something that, again, different part of the brain, but it sends the right signal. Um, But what I did with him, Tietze has this great thing where he says, all you need to do is like stretch and unpress. And the unpress part is something I don't like a negative directive, but if you do that valve exercise that I was just doing earlier, like very robotic and really dare yourself to feel nothing in a way, except the output of the source. So you scan your body and my tense anywhere. And I just feel this kind of, I find you can get vibrancy from that place. Mm because there's no external engagement at all. Now it takes a very Zen kind of experience, but you can get people to that place where it's like simple and then you just vibrate from there. And if I have the visual with it, that tends to be my holy grail of, of getting vibrancy. Nice one. Yeah. Hey, great. This is, um, this is true. I guess we should, um, stop being vampires for your time now and uh, and let you get, As I said, I let you do get this away i know we, do, we don't sorry. So, sorry to everyone we don't do this enough either because we're you know mm-hmm. we're just caught up at different parts of the world doing doing life basically but every time we get back on um to uh, record a podcast especially with people like yourself it's just uh, mm-hmm. it just reminds me every time how much there is to know and learn so thank you so much um for thank coming you. on um what would you like to fire out there as being either your Ooh. your social media stuff or oh. if you've got anything that you're selling uh, by, by oh. all means mention i'm so it. bad yeah i'm so bad at this please follow me and i'm not i don't have a website right now but i'm on i have a facebook page heidi moss erickson soprano scientist pedagogue i have a journal club if people like it's called mind minding the gap where we review neuroscience papers and i'm on twitter a lot that's where my neuro life like my scientific life lives heidi moss twitter um yeah, and just write to me. Tell me what you want in the world. Great. <laughs> I'm yeah. really bad at the business end, so thank no, no. you. I we'll, just we'll post those in the in the article, and we'll also post them on the page because I um I personally have got uh, a lot out of your review uh, out of Mind in the Gap. Um, oh, thank l- you. Lurking, admittedly, 
Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the 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 kind of the the summaries you put up there, I I would say I urge people to to um, look at those summaries because they are highly digestible, digestible and give mm. give the a, a nice um, uh, roundup of of quite actually can be quite complex papers. Yeah. Thank you. And articulation will be next. I do have a biofeedback, visual biofeedback paper coming up, should be next month in Journal of Singing. So if people are interested in visual biofeedback, I do rank apps uh, and give many applications on there for different things in pedagogy that you can use for visual biofeedback. Excellent. So that'll be coming up. Lovely. Right. Thank you so thank much, you. Heidi. This has been amazing. Uh, echoed by a lot thank of people you. on the comments. So thank you. Oh, thank yeah, you for having time. me. Thank you. Um, let me just figure out how to stop this thing. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. I hope this works. Bye.